Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are Fine Woodworking editor Asa Christiana and senior editor Matt Kenny. What's up, yo? You know, I, I want to straighten something out before we pile into the podcast today. Yeah. Um, even though, Asa, your title is editor, and Matt, your title is senior editor. It's because I'm old. Asa's the boss. It's weird it's here. It's kind of weird. It is weird. It's like, is it editor and chief? I don't really care about titles. It's all kind of goofy, but I prefer exalted overlord. But um, it's kind of weird. Uh, he can afford not to care about titles yeah, because he's I guess. the boss. It's right. a luxury. <laughs> but That's it's why like, he drives a Bentley. Is it editor in chief? You know, when I, even when I describe my job to people, I just say I'm an editor at the. You're so humble. Thing. That's what it's a humble That's brag. That's what it's all about. I'm just so humble and grounded. <laughs> um, well, I... Uh, so Why did you feel the need to point that out, Ed? <laughs> I have felt the need to point that out, quite honestly, since we started the podcast. Because it's, it's kind of confusing, Right. I feel like. Well, in his own mind, Matt does feel more senior and authoritative than most people. Wow. He's yeah. nodding. I am. All right. <laughs> uh, well, let's head into things. So you guys know that... Um, that I, I recently came back from Phil Lowe's uh, workshop. Phil, for those of you who don't know, is a very accomplished period furniture maker in Beverly, Massachusetts. And um, The Beverly thing is accurate, but the very accomplished is a huge understatement. There you go. Um, and I had never been to his shop before, so it was a ridiculously cool treat. And I actually um, told Phil while I was there, we were shooting a video workshop, um, series on building his bench. And uh, I told Phil, I said, you know, I and I meant this, I, I do see a lot of people and I'm usually interested in taking a class with a lot of the people that I shoot with. But Phil was the first one that when I left, I kind of looked at the videographer, Gary, and I said, Gary, I, I absolutely have to do a class with this guy. <laughs> He's that awesome and his shop is that cool. Yeah, it's, his shop is fantastic. I've been there a lot. It's really cool. He's got some great machinery in there. Uh, it's loaded down with all the uh, templates he's used during his career. Hundreds all yeah. over the walls. Furniture that he's made and things like that, and uh, it's a great place. The thing is, you can tell, I've visited a ton of shops on this job, and you can tell the people who are really productive, generally the people who are the best woodworkers, because their shops and their shop fixtures are the least fancy. I hate to say it, but it's true. It's all for the purpose of building amazing furniture. And Phil's worked on million-dollar pieces of furniture for Sotheby's and stuff. But there's his shop's in a beautiful old building. Yeah, it's in a great right down, right maybe a hundred yards from the bay in yeah. Beverly. Yeah. But if you look at what he actually like, where he keeps drawings and where mm. he puts his tools, it's not designed to make an amazing-looking cabinet and shop. It's designed to make amazing. The shop is a tool designed to make. It's you know, furniture, amazing furniture, and it's built, everything's built just as much as it needs to be. Right. Yeah, there's no nonsense about that. But it's incredible. Yeah. But I still think it's it happens to have worked out so that it's kind of a really warm-looking shop. And oh, I counted definitely. 175 various forms of hand planes, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> he has collected a lot of molding planes over the years. No, it's amazing because of all the equipment he has and everything. I just love that. Uh, nothing is fancy for the sake of being fancy. Yeah. You know, he has, he's been in the business, and maybe part of that is because if you're a hobbyist, 
you have the luxury. I mean, your your shop is your refuge, right? So you have the, and you also have more time than a working pro. Phil's been a working pro and a working teacher his whole life. So, you know, he's got to get down to business. But if you're a hobbyist, you have the opportunity to make a really gorgeous tool cabinet that you're really proud of and for your sanctuary, for your, you know, for your craftsmanship cave. Well, let's, uh, I say we let Phil speak for himself. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, here's the, the interview with Phil that I captured uh, during our video workshop shoot. We're here in Beverly, Massachusetts with Phil Lowe and Art Keenan. Art, what, what's, uh, what's, your, what's your position around here? Huh. How do you fit into this <laughs> crazy, bizarre place? I don't know, to be honest with you, what my position is. I just hang around and help out. I have no deal. job title. Sounds like a good deal. I work for Phil Lowe, so <laughs> it's fairly informal. All right. And, Phil, what's your position around here? Uh, Artie's my boss. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I uh, run the Furniture Institute of Massachusetts, which is a uh, program that can be one, two, or three years. And we do weekend classes and night classes and summer classes and all sorts of classes. Anything we can make a buck at. And he also takes in repair work, and uh, he builds new stuff, too. And apparently he allows annoying video crews to come in and shoot he does. video workshop series. He does, and he's glad to have them. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, we, got, we put together a bunch of uh, questions from uh, some of the staff and some of our readers and whatnot. So I figured we'd sit here, chew the fat, and uh, cover some ground. So I want to go back in time and figure out, bit by bit how you ended up here. I know that um, you started out in the Navy as a young fellow rolling around on a ship um, doing woodworking. Yeah. And I'm wondering how that yeah. works on a ship. Well, <laughs> it, it was a challenge at times. I remember uh, a few times being at sea and needing to uh, cut plywood, and the, uh, the saw was uh, situated from uh, you know, port to starboard, and uh, as we went over a few rollers and out to sea, the ship would tilt in one way and you'd be pushing the plywood uphill. And then all of a sudden it would tilt the other way and zing, <laughs> the plywood would take off. You wouldn't have to push it at all. <laughs> Jeez, I that. It was pretty crazy, I must say. What kind of woodworking goes on on a ship? Well, uh, we did mostly decorative woodworking. We would... We would do uh, things like deck gratings and handrails for the, you know, gangways and quarter deck boards and, you know, things of that sort. What kind so, of uh, ship were you on, Phil? Uh, it was a repair ship. It was basically a floating industrial city. So I shared a shop uh, with pattern makers, and uh, we could virtually make anything on board, um, you, if you had a part that was missing or broken, the uh, draftsman would draft it. They would send it to the pattern makers. The pattern makers would make a pattern. We had a foundry on board. It would get sent off to the foundry. They would pour and cast whatever part needed to be done. And then we had machine shops on board, and uh, they would do all the milling of the parts and so forth. And um, it was really, you know, uh, it was quite an education in the uh, industrial complex, you might say. And, and I understand that that's why your shop here is uh, loaded with Oliver woodworking machinery. You got it. <laughs> yeah, all the uh, the machinery that uh, th this ship had w was nothing but the best. And uh, 
it was all, you know, old cast iron Tanowitz and Oliver and those uh, types of machines. And that's how I was weaned on these things. So um, I really got an, uh, you know, uh, you know, desire to own them. And that's why I have them now. Oliver's not manufactured anymore, right? No, they're out of business, but they uh, another a fellow pick up picked up the uh, business model, and I think he runs uh, American Eagle Woodworking okay. Machines right now. The Oliver name is still out there. Yeah, he sells it under the Oliver name. Okay, all right. So uh, <clears throat> you leave the Navy. When, about when is that? Oh, that's about 1972, I guess it is somewhere around there, and. Um, I had been in Bennett Street for a while, and uh, I was going to get drafted. So I joined the Navy and did my stint there. And then I came out and used my GI Bill and went back to school in Boston. So, At? At uh, North Bennett Street. So you school. were able to use the GI Bill from North Bennett Street? Yes. Yep. Okay. Um, so what was – can you compare North Bennett Street 40-some-odd uh, years ago to today? Not at all. Not at all. It was really quite uh, – completely different. Uh, when I was a student there, there was uh, it was the program was in one room. It uh, had a six inch joiner, a twelve inch planer, and uh, there was only seven students in the program. And uh, as I sort of got towards the end of my program, uh, I um, you know they were looking to do a little expansion to uh, double the program to fourteen. And they thought that if they were going to do that, they would have to bring in another instructor. So that's when I was asked if I would uh, like to give George Fullerton, the, uh, my mentor, a hand uh, helping with some of the instruction. And I jumped at the chance. And, and what were the uh, – I mean, I, Asa was talking about how you um, produced – you were pretty prolific in the amount of work you cranked out while you were there. Uh, what, 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 take us through some of that. Well, I think it was mainly because of the experience I had coming out of the service, you know, working on all of these different, uh, different types of machines and doing so much mill work and so forth. I really didn't need to learn about the milling of, uh, of lumber. Um, I mean, I, I had to learn some nuances, but, um, I could grind wood and cut and make measurements pretty easily. So, um, I think that four years of working in that industrial uh, situation really, you know, benefited me when I, uh, you know, when I went back to school. And, and so you spent, how long did you spend teaching at North Bennett Street? I was there for 10 years. And uh, the last five, I was uh, the head of the uh, furniture program. And, uh, you know, it was a lot of fun. I, you know, I look back and see some of the people that uh, I taught that are still in the trade and uh, successful, I, you know, makes me feel pretty good. And so that brings, that brings us into the 80s, and that's about the time that you ended up with the, the present location you're at now, in the late 80s at least. Uh, not quite. I, I, uh, when I left, I actually started my shop out of my home. Oh, that sounds very familiar. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I just you know, another woodworker. <laughs> I took over the basement with all the machines, and the laundry was right next to them. And it's just your wife was little, so excited. Uh, it was insanity. Well, the money know? was rolling in, so she didn't <laughs> mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So she, so I understand that she kicked you out, and you well, ended up. Well, I think it was a mutual. Uh, <laughs> okay, a, a mutual thing. You can tell I yourself mean, I, that. It's all right. I had, you know, I had taken over the first floor of the house, and when I started to encroach on the second floor, <laughs> and we had, uh, you know, two little kids running around, uh, you know, it was really time. And I had three employees coming in at the time as well, so I think it was really time to leave. <laughs> and so, and now the place you're at now, which is a really cool um, old brick factory building uh right by the water i mean your your commute to work is pretty grueling well it's, if i yeah if i uh come out the front door and fall down i can roll down the hill and i'm just about there <laughs> <laughs> literally it's just up he the does street. roll down the hill so <laughs> unbelievable it's about 100 yards if you stretch it <laughs> unbelievable well the thing um i had never been here before and i kind of feel this is leading up into what i want to ask next but this is like being a kid in a candy store because there's all sorts of patterns hanging off. I just want to describe it for folks who are listening to this. There's all sorts of patterns hanging off the wall. Uh, I counted, um, give or take, about 175 hand planes of different, you know, makes and models, different makes, and models, types. Wood. So you have now officially eclipsed uh, poor Mike Pekovich, who we often make <laughs> fun of on the podcast for having way too many hand planes. Um, there's also a room in the front where you do your drafting um, that has some gorgeous chairs. There's one in particular that you said was a McIntyre mm-hmm. reproduction yep. um, that I'm going to blog. I'm going to have to blog about um, or at least have photos uh, in the mm-hmm. podcast blog. Um, I was wondering, uh, before I head into my next question, if you could take us through this piece of furniture. And like I said, I'll post photographs of it online, but it just kind of it's such a pretty piece of furniture. <laughs> Well, it's uh, it's actually um, a copy of uh, some pieces that the Peabody Museum owned. They actually had three pieces, uh, three of these chairs, and they owned the house that they were originally in. So they wanted to have a full complement of these chairs, so they asked me to uh, build six, and uh, um, eight of them went into the house, and they kept one for the museum floor. And uh, it was quite a challenge. They uh, would, you know, come over in the morning and deliver the chair and uh, come back at night and fetch it to bring it back to the museum because they didn't, certainly didn't want it, uh, uh, anything to happen to it. So I had the opportunity to spend quite a bit of quality time with it, getting measurements and photographs and so forth so I could produce a working drawing. But did you and, sit in it? Um, we won't say anything about right. that. <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story about uh, one of those uh, episodes one time. But um, this, uh, it, was, it was quite a challenge. McIntyre was one of the best woodcarvers in the 18th century in Salem. And uh, he, that's all he did. He just carved. He didn't uh, build chair frames or anything like that. So it he was, was the, He was the embellisher. He was, he was, and uh, they had all these different uh, other fellows that were, uh, you know, building the chairs and so forth for him. But uh, there's actually, if you look in the uh, the Sheridan uh, book, uh, this chair is directly from that book. So it really shows the the history of where the the design came from, and uh, to see what McIntyre did with his carving, he you know he was a master at low relief, and uh, to try and match what he did was a bit of a challenge, I must say. And this is a chair that's got um, 
I mean, tell us about the upholstery and the furniture tax. The upholstery in particular is just blew me away. Well, we uh, when I had the uh, the chair upholstered, it uh, I wanted to have it done traditionally, so that's done with. Uh, it starts off with English webbing, which is uh, a hand woven webbing, and then there's no a, springs, uh, no springs, and then um, uh, linen is put over the top of that, and then generally uh, it, it's stuffed with real horsehair, and then uh, some cottons put over the top, and then a, a muslin of some sort, and then uh, I chose a horsehair fabric that uh, was the final cover. And uh, this material came from a company in England called uh, John Boyd, and they've been around since, uh, I think it's the early 19th century, late 18th century, 1810, somewhere around there. And they've been producing this fabric ever since then. And uh, it's really very, very durable. And uh, my uh, my upholsterer <clears throat> talked me into having uh, gold-plated tacks uh, in swags that run across the front and the sides of this piece. Oh, man. So the the uh, it's actually I mean it's it's the hair from the horse's tail is that it correct is. Yep. So that determines you were saying that determines the length of fabric you can weave. Yep. The the width of the fabric. The yep. width of the fabric. Yeah. Um, and what kind of threw me off about that was that when you look at the fabric, I mean at least in my eye, it looked like a like a raw silk. I mean it had a little bit of, it has a little bit of a shimmer to it. Yep. And um, I think that's partly from the horse hair, but it's also uh, woven with I believe a cotton. Uh, of some sort. So uh, depending on what the warp and the weave is, yeah. it uh, it really depends on. Uh, but they were able to weave it into different patterns as well, and they will um, also do, um, you know, uh, different colors uh, by dyeing the horsehair and the, sure. the cotton. And you can get by striped fabrics and all kinds of different fabrics. And these are not, I, I think you had mentioned as well that these, these 18th century chairs were not... Um, they were not particularly comfortable. Poof. They were terrible. Yeah, all of them. <laughs> they were, uh, I think, you know, it was the type of uh, situation where, you know, women would sit on the edge of the chair with their hands folded in their lap and, you know. You didn't um, lounge. You, there was no lazed boy. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Um, well, I mean, so let's move in. You know, that's a piece that you built as a reproduction. Um, but you also... Um, you, you do a good amount of restoration work. Mm-hmm. And, restoration and, and conservation. And conservation, right, mm-hmm. there being a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, some of the, to put things into perspective, I mean, some of the the historic pieces of furniture that you work on are six, maybe even seven figures in value. And I guess my first question um, is, you know, when I wrap my head around that, um, I would be terrified the first time I got a commission to, you know, restore or conserve something that was of that value. I, I think I'd be too terrified to touch it. <laughs> and I wonder what goes through your head when you, you know, when you were younger. And were you nervous? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, a, a bit. I, you know, there was always somebody that I could consult with, you know, the yeah. museum curators or the antique dealers or whoever I was, uh, you know, might be working for. I, you know, it's an interesting story. The, uh, the logo that I use is a McIntyre chair back, and I took that from a conservation job or a restoration job that I did for an antique dealer uh, one time. And uh, I found it, you know, quite comical because I was working out of my house at the time, and he brought the, um, the chair in, and he sat it down, and it was obvious what was wrong with it. It would have really been a had a bad uh, 
uh, you know, damaged splat to it that I had to repair. And he um, he asked me, uh, you know, he said, now, Phil, um, you know, the value of this chair is $40,000. And I went, what? <laughs> and I said, I just bought my house for 40000 bucks, And I thought, <laughs> my God, what, I, I want this chair or I want my house? You know? <laughs> wow. Can't sleep so, in the chair. <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, it, uh, you know, he was quite nervous having it uh, at the shop, and uh, he wanted me to put up a curtain and so forth so people couldn't pair in the shop and see what was going on and so forth. So, um, you know, there are times where you have to be certainly concerned about that. And, you know, insurance-wise, generally what happens is, you know, uh, the museum or um, collectors and so forth will, you know, have riders taken out on sure. their insurance policies while they're they're out of their possession and usually this uh, statement saying you know that the piece will be in the hands of this particular person you know for um you know this length of time and uh you know if uh needed we sort of alter that and so forth so i don't have to have you know millions of dollars of insurance to to have right. the piece here so and now the difference um define for us the difference between restore and conserve uh, a lot of people say it's about fifty bucks an hour, but no. <laughs> uh, conservation is really an ethical thing where you uh, you try not to alter the piece or its uh, its original um, state in a- any way, shape, or form. Uh, so, if there's a piece of veneer that's broken, you don't cut any of the veneer away. What you do is you try to cut the patch to the to the shape of the piece that's missing right as opposed to cutting a you know it into a triangular piece or something of that sort and uh then piecing it in because it makes it easier to do um you know finishes generally what we do we try not to remove any original finishes uh that have been there there aren't too many pieces that have original finishes these days but even still we still treat those as though they um they they uh you know you don't want to remove anything so a lot of times we'll amalgamate a finish meaning if it's shellac we'll remelt the original shellac back onto the surface after cleaning and there may be times where we add a little bit of material in order to um fill in uh spots that are missing mm. uh you know things of that sort but the main thing with conservation is you usually do it in uh different stages uh the first thing is to make it uh sound so it's not it won't nothing um you know no further damage can really occur to it say if it's got a broken leg or something like that uh you want to make sure that those things are taken care of first before you do any anything else and then uh you put it things into priority and uh most of the time um, you know, you replace pieces that might be missing. You try to use the original materials. You try to use the original adhesives uh, and also the original finish materials if possible. So, so when you're doing restoration and conservation work, um, do you ever have situations where you're, oh, I guess this would be restoration work. This wouldn't happen in a conservation situation. But let's say you're um, you're removing a the leg of a chair to do some sort of repair um, do you ever find interesting notations, um, interesting little tidbits when you take something apart, things that were hidden before that kind of make you go, huh? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, it's a really great way to learn furniture construction and so forth because, um, you know, there are standard ways in which things are put together, especially chairs and uh, tables and things of that sort. And, um, you know, it's always interesting to see how somebody built something. And a lot of times you can almost tell that the craftsman's uh, abilities when you start working on some of these pieces because um, you can tell whether, you know, uh, the, sharp, the the tools are sharp or the, uh, um, you know, if, you know, shoulders are crude when they were paired or, you know, you just get a sense of, you know, where they're at. And, you know, there's a lot of um, different um, grades of furniture and you might say, uh, you know, there's primitives right up to the masterpieces. And I like to always say to my students that we all make primitives at some point in our life. So, But we're always striving for that, you know, <laughs> you know that masterpiece as well. And it's uh, interesting to see, you know, everything in between as you progress. So, yeah. Fair enough. Um, so I heard uh, a little bird told me that there was a, a story about an interesting rosewood table. In here, and when we yeah. got here, when when Gary Junkin, our videographer, and I arrived here um, on Monday morning, uh, you gave us the dime tour of the shop and pointed out a rather, I don't know that that piece of rosewood must be about seven feet long and maybe what close to two feet in width, and that was part of this big job you had recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that was Tell some of my profit. That. <laughs> it was some of your profit. Yeah, I guess so. If you got to keep that. Yeah. Well, I bought. Uh, I yeah. I, I had this customer from Marblehead that uh, uh, you know bought this house over there and uh, sunk an awful lot of money into restoring it. You know, and uh, he actually kept Marblehead builders alive mm. for three years. Let's put it that way. Uh, and I remember driving by there a couple of times and. Um, it looked like there was ants crawling all over this place. It, there was so many workers involved, and he spent. Uh, but he's, you know, this is the type of fellow that, you know, he. Uh, this is his job. If you ask me, he, you know, it makes enough money that he needs to have these things made and help keep the local economies going. But this is his summer home. Uh, he originally grew up in in Marblehead, so he can't, comes back once a month. But he, um, they uh, had this place re- rebuilt, and um, you know they moved in, and they needed a kitchen. This was a kitchen table, and uh, they want. You know, when we were talking, uh, they asked me to design something. So I, you know, I didn't do any. It wasn't really a reproduction. It was just something that I came up with, seeing the space that they had and some of the other furniture that was in the kitchen and so forth. And um, I. Uh, you know, showed them the design. They loved it. Then they said that they wanted some sort of antique or recycled or reclaimed lumber. So we looked around for a little while trying to find things. And, um, you know, I wasn't really coming up with too much. And I sent them to uh, Rick Hearn's website. And they. The Pennsylvania hardwood dealer. Yep, Pennsylvania hardwood dealer. And they picked out um, a. This is East Indian rosewood that uh, Rick had. And. Um, I called him up and asked him if he had enough, and he said that he did. And I, um, they said that you know, I asked him if uh, they wanted me to go pick it out, and they said yes. So I drove down there thinking that I'd uh, buy this stuff, throw it in the van, and come on home. <laughs> uh oh, Art's, Art's cracking up to himself. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, you know, I I picked everything out, and you know, I went in, and they took, they tallied it up, and. Um, 
they, I gave them my credit card, and they said, well, Mr. Lowe, <laughs> I'm afraid your credit card isn't big enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow. That gives you an idea of what we're talking about. Yeah. So uh, wow. I said, well, that's, that's all well and good. I'll just go, and I would feel better about this if I go get uh, you know, a down payment for the wood, and um, you know, I'll send you a check, and then you can just you know, ship it up to me. So that's yeah. what we did. So. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That oh my is heavy gosh. wood. Yeah. Well, that's heavy wood. And, and quite frankly, we remember we saw the uh, Gary and I, uh, our eyes were uh, bulging out of our head when we saw your stash of, uh, of ebony, of Gabon ebony. Huh. And there's, a, there's one um, like sort of, if you looked at the cross section, sort of semicircular um, half of a trunk back there that's about three feet tall. And you can see the marks from somebody's ads or whatever it was they were using yeah. to shape this out in the field. And like I said, it's three feet long. It's maybe what uh, seven, eight inches in width. Yep. Yeah. And it is. It's got to be sixty pounds. It's yeah. like a piece of steel. It's like a piece of steel. Yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable. I mean, it, yeah. God. Yeah. Um, and that sort of that that sort of led me to discovering this beautiful nightstand that you guys are are building of a pair a pair yeah. of nightstands, all ebony with a lot of, a good amount of gilding. Yeah. It's going to be striking. Yeah, really striking. Yeah, we'll do some. We're going to have uh, some of the beads on the turned legs, and beads around the, uh, you know, the. Uh, uh, well, there's some panels that have a little build. You know, just stripes and nothing, you know, nothing crazy, but um, just accent places. And we're going to do water gilding as opposed to oil gilding on that. So, that's just applying varnish and you know attaching the gold to the varnish as opposed to, you know, gesso and clay and. You know, burnishing and all that. And then you're gonna stuff. have a. It looked like I was looking at the the uh, plans. You've got a a leather top, leather top, and yep. then glass over that. That's got ground mm-hmm. edges or something. Yeah, yeah. So it you know it's interesting. Uh, you know, it was designed uh, or the concept, I guess, was done by an architect, and I was certainly glad I didn't have to build it off her theirs because <laughs> it was they didn't really know furniture construction and uh you know they were they were more about what it was going to look like and you know when it was handed off to me i developed the working drawings for it and uh you know uh, uh the way that it really needs to be put together so and they were all very good good with that so couple couple more questions before we before we move on back to newtown connecticut uh one of them is can you give us an idea of a couple of the most common mistakes that make you want to pound your head into the wall when you see students doing them repeatedly? I ask this because I want to know what to avoid in my own shop. <laughs> like, what's what are some of the more common mistakes that we we that's not you guys, hmm. but we hmm. <laughs> all make? Well, I think there's one in particular is. Uh, when you lay th- lay out just for a simple mortise and tenon, how you might strike lines around a, a board that's a shoulder line, mm-hmm. and uh, y- you know a lot of people just assume that uh, you put the head of the square on any one of those surfaces, and lines are going to match up. And um, as I try to teach these folks that you know it, that isn't the way. And uh, another thing that I find that people do quite frequently is they assume that um, they mill a piece of wood to a certain dimension and, say, three-quarters of an inch, and they said, oh, well, all I have to do is set my marking gauge to a quarter inch, and I'll strike lines off of both surfaces Mm. to uh, come up with the thickness of the tenon. But I always uh, try to emphasize that 
you know, pieces can vary in size. They can go through the planer at different times and so forth. So I'm a, I always try to work off of one reference surface when laying out tenons as opposed to working off two. So that those are a couple of big ones that are very rudimentary, um, you know, techniques that if you can learn uh, early on, it really so saves a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of uh, heartache and, it elevates your work a bit. Let's put so it you that find way. so so to, to break this down because this is a good tip. Uh, when you're marking a shoulder line, you find a reference corner. Yes. We'll say, yep. and you make all of you strike all your lines. Well, let's say three of the four lines you strike off of one of those two uh, edges on that reference corner. No, it's actually all or four. All of four them. can yep. come off those because two. the the head of the square goes against one surface when you're striking them across the edges. And then it goes off of one edge when you're striking it across the surfaces. And I also noticed that a lot of times you will, um, you don't trust necessarily the squareness of a piece. Let's say you cross-cut a a stretcher or something on your table saw. Um, A lot of us will, correct me where I get this wrong because I'm sure I'll get it wrong somewhere, but a lot of us will take a marking gauge now and... We'll set the marking gauge where we want it, and we'll just go off the end, end on of the all board. four sides. Shoom, 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 shoom. Right. You don't do that. I don't. You <laughs> strike a little short line just to indicate length. This is the length, mm-hmm. and, but then you use a your s- knife and a square. Yes. All the way around. Right. And that's simply, it's a simple matter of whether the end of the board is square or not. And if you're saw blade is slightly tilted or if your miter gauge is slightly out of square uh whatever line you strike off the end of the board is just going to reflect whatever you know error is on the end of the board thus magnifying all your inaccuracies little by little exactly Um, so before we head out of here uh can you fill us in as to what's coming up uh next at uh, the furniture institute of massachusetts what kind of classes have you got coming up as far as uh, one-off classes or one-week uh, we, classes? Well, we have, uh, we have a furniture uh, drafting and design class coming up, and we do some lathe-turning classes, and uh, we have you know small boxes. Usually in the summer we try to do more uh, uh, project-oriented classes you know, that uh, can span for a week or two weeks, for instance. You know, I always try to run a two-week-long uh, chair-making class in the summer. Uh, but we also try to throw in some fundamentals of hand tools and machine woodworking and things of that sort. Inlay, so, inlay. things of that nature, veneering. And uh, what's the URL for the website? Uh, FurnitureMakingClasses.com, all one word. In Beverly, Massachusetts. Well, Art Keenan, thank you, sir. And Phil Lowe, thank you, sir. Thank you. Now we have to... Uh, we have to go back and shoot some more video because we still have to finish up the last episode of your workbench video series. So, um, Gary, Junkin, please uh, spark up the camera. I'm coming for you. <laughs> Take it easy, guys. Thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was Phil Lowe and Art Keenan, or I should say Art Keenan. Um, Art Keenan. <laughs> Furniture Institute. Art just kind of hangs out and, and has a good time. He's retired, and he uh, trades uh, helping around the shop for a little shop space, and he's just an all-around good guy. He didn't speak as much as I was hoping he would, but uh, a little bit. Um, but the coolest story I thought he told, the funniest story, was uh, wood, ripping wood on a rolling ship in the Navy. It was just ridiculous. Yeah, it sounds mildly, mildly adventurous. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, that would be an understatement. But all the, uh, that's what you, you were talking about, all the 
the gear in his shop, all of that stuff, it's all, um, oh gosh, uh, Oliver uh, machinery that I guess yeah. he got exposed to in the Navy. That's what part of what makes his shop so beautiful. Plus, he's been in business so long, so you have all these models and chair backs and things that he's built over the years to sort of show clients. So that makes his shop just full of romance and everything. But one of the other things I wanted to say about Phil is how low-key he is. Um, you know, it's another thing I've found about some of the greatest woodworkers I've ever met is how they don't have to beat their drum really loudly, or they don't. You know, it's a really cool thing in this day and age to have someone who who toots the horn actually more softly than they could. And that's when horn. you know that you're dealing with somebody who actually is incredibly gifted. Yeah, I think that's one sign. I mean, some people mark are are you know, Sam Maloof marketed the heck out of himself. So, you know, there's different strokes out there. But yeah, Sam definitely deserved that, though. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. Uh, yeah. yeah, Phil's a fantastic guy, and he is really quiet and easygoing, and you never you never get the sense that this is guy is a world-class furniture maker. Never get the sense, you know? He's so calm and humble. Right, until he starts to tell you how to do stuff and yes, talk yeah, about woodworking. Once he, if you see him work, it's amazing. Yeah, he ha- probably has the most hand skill I've ever witnessed um, with hand tools. Just, And he's got his own take on it, which is not to be fancy and get... You know, shavings Overly like in precious. a Japanese plane com- planing competition that are, you know, uh, uh, a tenth of a thousandth thick. His thing is to be efficient about how he uses hand tools. And it's amazing. All those little tricks and tips a guy like Phil has is really cool. My favorite Phil story is the little understated New England things that he'll pop out with once in a while. Like there's this place uh, near there called Marblehead. It's well known to people um, in the area. And he was explaining something to one of his students and uh, suddenly the person was like, oh, that's your reference edge. And Phil goes, dawn over Marblehead, just real quiet. <laughs> you know, I love that sort of thing. Because, you, know, you know, tradesmen have been saying that in Massachusetts oh, yeah. for like forever, you know. He, uh, he had an interesting, you were talking about all the chairs that are lined up on his wall that yeah. are hanging. Yeah. He had one there. When I walked into one of the machine rooms, uh, there was this really beautiful uh, antique East Lake chair hanging on the wall, incredibly just carved. Every inch of this thing was carved. And I asked him, you know, where'd you get that? And uh, he picked it up at a flea market. He goes to a lot of flea markets, you know, and, and, and tool auctions and things like that. Picked it up at a flea market for 30 bucks. And the reason why he hung it was he said, you know, I I could never carve that thing for $30. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like it was the coolest chair. But anyhow... That's yeah, Phil, there. one other thing about yeah. people might not know about Phil is that he was kind of a legend at North Bennett when he was there. I've heard this from a number of people, that they have a fixed amount of like mandatory pieces you're supposed to build. And Phil like blew through those. And it used to be, they've brought it a little bit more down to earth, but they used to launch you straight into serious period furniture, like right mm-hmm. off the bat. And um, they still get you there, but they do it, They they kind of... I think do an even better job these days of first getting you the fundamentals before they launch you into yeah. you know hammer veneering, but um, they say Phil was like unreal that he was just a woodworking savant like he he blew through the mandatory stuff and then it you know you see the the portfolio of things he built there it's ridiculous and he was like a teenager it's it's unbelievable or maybe in his early twenties I yeah. can't I know uh, one more story about mm-hmm. Phil was uh, one of our editors here Tom McKenna was once taking a class with him and I. 
he took out a block plane, which block planes oh, yeah. he did this to aren't in favor at uh, North Bennett Street School. They used not to be. Really? They don't like the block plane? No. So this was what Phil said to him. He, he walks past Tom. Wait a minute. And he, and he Ladies says, and gentlemen. He says, uh, <laughs> block plane's a cop and a stool. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I made that mistake while we were shooting the, the video series. I was like, uh, you know, we had a break in filming. And I said, okay, Phil, so what's the next step? Would you just, like, break out your block plane and soften all the edges and... He, same thing. He just stopped. Say that's a carpenter's tool around here. That, so you've so <laughs> the podcast away. listeners have got have have been able to hear three really bad Massachusetts accents today. Yeah, really bad. Anyhow, well, that was a <laughs> wicked interview. Um, we, <laughs> uh, we can't say the rest of the normal phrase, yeah. can we? Um, anyhow, <clears throat> let's head into our questions. So uh, there were a couple of questions that kind of came in, uh, going back and connecting to an earlier podcast where Matt and I duped it out over boiled linseed oil on workbenches. So here's a question. I think duped from, it out is a bit of an overstatement. Um, where Matt kicked my butt over a conversation <laughs> on boiled... <laughs> so anyhow, uh, the first question is from Jack. And Jack wrote, Your last podcast has left me worried. Like Matt, I love cherry and never stain it as I love the way it darkens naturally. That said, my go-to finish for cherry the last few years has been a base coat of boiled linseed oil followed by three to four coats of water locks. I use boiled linseed oil as a base because it imparts a slightly warmer tone to the raw wood, and I like what it does to accent the figure. Do I need to worry about yellowing over time, even though I have several coats of water locks on top? Um, yeah, I, don't, I think that I've used boiled linseed oil and pure tongue oil on cherry before, and what I have found is that it tends to sort of get muddy over time. I have never used then used water locks over it. What I would say, if you're using water locks, just use the water locks. Get rid of the boiled linseed oil. The water locks will do a great job of bringing out figure. Yeah, it's got oil in it, just like boiled linseed oil. Right, and it will also it will it'll give a nice color to the cherry. Yeah, it's it's more warm than boiled linseed oil, which is a little more yellowy. Water locks is slightly more reddish. Yeah. But it still, I mean, it looks like cherry. Yep. It gives it a nice color, and it also builds up a nice film finish. You can, yeah, well, the great thing about water locks, and the reason that most of us have started to go to it as our go-to finish is because it builds so quickly. There's, It's just formulated in a way that the resins, um, uh, they, they harden uh, really nicely, and they build, and it's got a lot of resin uh, in it, a lot of solids in it. And it builds quickly. You can even put it on with a brush, and it'll fully dry and cure. The downside is that it tends to gel up in the can really fast. But what's hilarious to me, and it's kind of outdated info, but some people still sort of brag that they make their own home brews of finish. That's on a side topic. It's like, I use the Maloof one part this, one part this, and Japan dryer. And it's like, you're not going to outwit the chemists at finishing <laughs> companies, you know, in your with your homebrew. Um, there's great stuff out there that is brewed perfectly for furniture makers, and Waterlocks is at the, kind of at the top of most of our lists. Yeah, I, uh, the only finishes I use, uh, it's either Waterlocks solely by itself or it's shellac by I, itself. Uh, that's kind of where I've arrived to yeah. these days. I hate to say it to all our finishing advertisers, but occasionally... Um, polyurethane or something like that on a surface that's one exception is like some kind of har- uh, more durable varnish on a tabletop something that gets a ton of wear and in yes. that case it's uh, oil based not water based all right it's uh, a bunch of info the guy didn't ask so for so maybe 86 the the blo as <laughs> yeah, he I would referred just, to it yeah and, the uh, bull and seed oil 
and just go straight to Waterlux. Simple. Yeah, looks um, fantastic. So question two is a, it's kind of a two-parter from Jason Pyron. And uh, so let's take question one from Jason. Um, he apparently built a hybrid bench based off elements of Matt, your monster workbench, and my not-so-big workbench. And in How his, is that, um, it's like, what do you end up with? You take a monster bench and combine it with a not-so-big so big workbench. The medium-sized workbench. <laughs> right. You um, get Jack's just-right bench. There you go. Jason's just-right bench. Oh, I had a typo in my thing here. Um, Ed, you threw me off. But uh, in his somewhat long message, he lamented that he could only find soft and not hard maple for the top. Now, first off, we all, the three of us here, talked about this before the show. Nothing wrong with a soft maple bench top. Well, no, it's because so hard. It's not like it's a pillow. It's not, right. It's really hard. It's still really hard. Yeah. So, so he can cease his lament. Yeah, cease your lament. Yeah. Um, and uh, so now, his first question. He was, this is going to sound familiar, he was set to use boiled linseed oil on the top until he heard Matt's disparaging comments on a previous episode regarding his dislike of the yellow tone. He's thinking of using Danish oil now, or would tongue oil be a good option? Uh, whatever you use, you want to use an oil that's going to dry. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. And two, you don't want to use anything that's going to build up a film finish. So you yeah, have no to use shellac, it. no poly. No. Yeah, I wouldn't. I would use because uh, also um, soft maple is already pretty tight pores. So you want you, if you put something on it that's not really going to soak in, it'll end up building a film finish on the top, and you don't want that. So, you want something that's going to get absorbed by the wood. Yep, yeah, boiled linseed oil is fine. It's I just don't like the color. Yeah, and I just—it's uh, especially apparent on maple. Yes, yeah, because It'll, maple's almost almost white, and so it really of all woods that shows the color, other than maybe holly yeah. or something. That shows the inherent color of the finish, which is pretty subtle. But you put it on a really white wood, and it shows up. My not so big bench is a that's lot. What it's got, and it's definitely it's a little right. yellow. It doesn't but, bother me, but but, but back, back to what Matt's saying, you're saying that there you re, there's a nice uh, open sweet spot in the middle between oils like mineral oil that won't dry and then finishes that build up um, a film. There's a ton of good choices in the middle. Yeah, there are a lot. You could use boiled linseed oil. There's really nothing wrong with it. Um, you could use, uh, if you can find pure tongue oil, Yep. Uh, you could use that. A lot of, uh, warning there, a lot of what's sold as tongue oil finish, you can see code words on there, or even tongue oil, is really just an oil varnish blend. It might not have any tongue oil in it at Correct. all. But pure, regular pure tongue oil is a drying oil. Because they're, be, they're not allowed to use uh, cow's thing. tongues anymore in the production. <laughs> of, <laughs> is that what it is? I, that's what I've read. It's baby yes. tongues. Baby, baby tongues. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And there's, uh, you could use... Something like a Danish oil, which would cover things like uh, the, Watco. Like Watco. Yeah. yeah, and that um, comes in all different tints. You could even do a little tint yeah. with that. Yeah, and so you could use that. And the thing is, just keep it light. Don't put too many coats on. Minwax antique oil is one that you can find all over the place. Yes. It's really nice, nice and warm. That'd I love be great the smell for a bench. Right. And uh, put but, it in a paper bag and just go nuts. Uh, one or Don't two, do that. One or two coats at most, I would think, is all you need. There used to be this old adage about once a day for seven days, <laughs> once a week for seven weeks, and uh-huh. then once a month for the rest of the life. And I'm like, God, it's way Is too that, much. That yeah. sounds like that thing about your honeymoon or anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Our former shop manager, John White, told me once, he said, you know, beyond maybe two coats of boiled linseed oil on a bench or whatever, it's not going to absorb anymore. So there's right. no point in, you know, a coat after And coat certain after oils coat. do have certain oil blends out there. They do have some resin in them. And if you put on tons of coats like Minwax Antique Oil or 
uh, they will start to build up a film. So really, you're safe with all these different oil finishes if you just put on a coat or two. Yes, yeah, yeah. And you want to... uh, uh was oh never mind. I was gonna say you don't even need to really have a finish unless you're. Oh, that's wanting, true. If you're unless you're trying to protect it from glue or something. Yeah. I mean, you don't really need a finish. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, <clears throat> pardon me. Uh, Jason's next question is this: He works in an unheated garage shop, and he's been noticing rust forming on some of his tools. So as a result, he started storing a lot of his hand planes in their original boxes, hoping that that might help. Um, any advice here? for dealing with rust in his shop? Well, there's a lot of things you can do. The first thing I would say is you can find out why your shop is so humid. Sometimes you just, like if you're in a basement or something, there's things you need to do to seal the walls. There's that sort of, I don't know if it's called dry Dry lock lock. or something. Yeah, there's stuff you can do, and you can seal the concrete floor. A concrete floor is like a sponge for humidity. Epoxy sealer. Actually, I think you can put any finish down, actually. I use leftover floor finish from my house and poured it all over the floor and spread it out with the same mop, and it sealed the floor. So that was polyurethane. I mean, you can Hmm. put, and you can get a little grit at the Home Depot or whatever that uh, drops in there to make the floor more skid-proof, slip-proof. But I think I've seen this guy shop online before. It's in the shallow wind of his pool. (laughs) <laughs> ah, see what it, so that's, that's it the right problem. there. Yeah. Yeah. So sealing the uh, the cement, good idea. Um, uh, yes. Dehumidifier? Uh, dehumidifier. I have one in my garage garage slash basement shop. Um, they run all the time, though, and you got to empty them unless you can get – well, you can hook them up till they drain automatically. But uh, dehumidifier, desiccants? Yeah, if you have it in – like I have, I have a bit of a moisture problem in my shop. And I put my hand planes, I have them in a tool cabinet. And in where I have my best planes, it's just a couple drawers, you know, the nice Lee Nielsen and Veritas stuff. So um, all that stuff, I put little desiccants. Um, You can get these ones that have the little silicone beads or something in them. And you throw them in the oven to basically heat them up and recharge them, they call it. It dries them back out again. And then they can soak up more moisture. So that works in an enclosed space. And there's another thing you can get for an enclosed space is they make these for uh, gun cabinets, actually. They're called, I think the brand name is Goldenrod. Goldenrod dehumidifiers. Yep. Right. And you plug them in, if I believe. You plug them in. I actually did a little research for you. Yeah. Uh, what, this is what gold, how Goldenrod describes their product. It's it, it's like a long cylinder. It's like a long tube, yes. tubular looking thing. Tiny little thing. And right. um, it says uh, Goldenrod dehumidifiers create convection currents, heating the internal air of the enclosure, bathing enclosed metals in warm air. This not only warms the surface of the metals, not allowing humidity to condense on cold metal, but also does not allow ambient air to ever reach its dew point, the temperature at which water condenses. So that's another possibility. And we've heard of of you know of people who have gun cabinets and stuff using that and liking that that's popular in that in, in that world I, I believe it's very standard in that world in right. lee valley i know sells them for tool nuts perfect yeah that's good and then uh, what else are there other desiccants i know there's the kind you recharge in the oven there also may be like throwaway kind. You were mentioning silica gel is the throwaway. You were mentioning one. some kind of bucket of stuff that yeah, you just put in your shop. We used shop. to do this in South Carolina. Damprid is that? What it's, it's called, called Damprid, I think. I think yeah. that's right. And it's like uh, it comes in maybe uh, different size buckets, but you uh, are pay- little plastic pails, and you just take the top off, and whatever lovely chemical or whatever is in there, it just soaks up water and soaks yeah. up water, and then at some point, it'll the water will be above the. It's almost like it looks like cat litter, sort of. I yeah. think, if I remember correctly. And then you just toss it, and you can get another one. And we also, I figure it's worth mentioning, we ran a couple few issues ago an article, The Best Rust Preventers. Oh, that's the other thing that we forgot to just mention, is that 
um, where you touch your tools with your hands tends to be a place that rust begins, that yes. they start to corrode. And so a lot of us have something, like I use camellia oil, but there's other ones we had in our rust preventers article that even work better. Um, you want something that's not going to be slimy to the touch afterward, but you basically put some oil on the tools after you sharpen them, after you use them. Um, Matt, you wipe the tools down, right? Uh, sometimes you were saying after you use them? I thought you said... Uh, maybe sometimes. I'm not oh. so good about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, I thought you mentioned that earlier when we were talking. I, I definitely get a little bit of rust where I handle metal bodies and such. Right, like right, on right. a miter, like a like a plane for the shooting board. Uh, I don't care for them as much as I should. But, uh, yeah, I wipe them down occasionally and... Uh, I put yojoba oil. Really? Yeah. Oh my god. But I think it, well, that's because that's is that what the I same can stuff get. you use on your head. It is. Yes. That's that's a relative of the majumba plant, I think. Right? Uh, no, it's actually a derivative of the mimbiki oh, tree. Oh, yes. It's hilarious. This is this is. <laughs> okay. um, the uh, yeah, the, I like. I make it part of my sharpening routine, kind of. It's like every time I sharpen stuff and I come back from the water stones, I'm always nervous about all that water. So I wipe everything down and I have the um, camellia oil thing that's got the little wand on it, like a little square wand, and you rub some of that on and then spread it around with your fingers, load it back in the plane, and you feel like, all right, I've taken care of that blade. I need to get some of the stuff that actually won that test we did. Yeah. There was some more commercial, manufactured, modern, synthetic products that – Worked way better than the the kind of precious Japanese camellia yeah. oil we all use. The best. And, oh no! Go ahead. I was going to say now that I don't plan on having any more kids, I don't mind using that stuff. Uh, so <laughs> the be- oh, enough. Okay, <laughs> the best rust preventers. That was the title of the article. We'll have a link in the blog post for this episode. So, next question um, for this next one or statement rather, I'm changing the reader's name to protect the innocent from a potential spousal attack. Jim air quotes, wrote, Hi guys, my wife is from Iowa and says that up there people park their cars in the garage. Is this true? I live in Texas and have never heard of such a thing. Thanks. Actually, I don't know what Jim's wife is talking about either. I've heard uh, of this. You have heard of this phenomenon? Yeah, it's, I think the original use for a garage was actually to park automobiles in there. I find that hard really? to believe. It, you Horseless to, I buggies? Went, I went way back into the literature. Interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> we should keep this information away from our spouses. Yes. I don't think, even when I was growing up, my parents have lived in the same house now since I was four. There's never been a car in the garage. Is that right? Was your dad a tinkerer too? Oh, uh, well, yeah. I mean, to some extent, my dad, you know, he's a contractor and he was, all, you know, he'd work on the house and stuff. And, uh, but it's just where we stored stuff. Well, that was Florida, right? Florida. Yeah. The thing is, up here in New England, uh, all joking aside, um, uh, it, it, it is, nice to be able to put your car in a garage during the snowy season yes um it's great to be able to pull it out and go right to work and not have to clear it off and warm it up and all that junk that we have to do but if you're a woodworker i mean the garage is a natural place to put your shop obviously and so we've made various deals with our spouses to make that happen my particular deal was i used to have a standalone shop in my backyard in a latin last house we owned which was great um but this new house we were building, we I couldn't really afford that, and it was easier just to build a garage. And I said, we're going to build a garage. Um, it makes sense if you ever resell the house because someone else might want to use it for the cars. But I said to my wife, um, please, let's not put any cars in there. I'd like it all for woodworking. And she's happy I'm a woodworker. Um, and I said, in return, I will 
never you get final say on all design decisions inside the house um and so she gets to make the call on every room what we do with it you know the final call i have input but um so that's worked out nice it gets me out of her hair so in terms if of your that stuff. wife were to come around and tell you that she plans on putting doilies under every single <laughs> item throughout the house you would there's no way out of that there's no way out of that i'm sorry yeah Yes. Part of me would think that's kind of like uh, like that's the trick deal because part of me is just like, I don't really care about what goes on in decor. You know, the, the decor. The thing is, I'm kind of a nightmare on that stuff. Um, mm. I can't imagine I mean? it. Can you? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to throw that in. It's like, can you guys picture me not having something to say about that? So it was good. It just got me out of her hair. All right. Fair yeah. enough. How about you, Matt? Didn't you make some kind of a deal? Well, we, we, you know, we moved into an old house. It's uh, probably it's over 100 years old, and uh, we were going to have to do some renovations. So I said, you know, look, we can park one car in the garage. I need the other half uh, so I can leave my tools set up, you know, because I'm going to be doing a lot of work. And then after a while, it was just like, you know, look, if I'm going to be... So you BS'd her. Your version of BS was to give her the half the garage deal. Mm. Right. Yeah. And then I was just like, you know, look, I, I got to have the whole garage. It's just, <laughs> it's got to be the whole garage because there's, there's, you know, now I've got a planer, a joiner and all this Suddenly stuff. that just came to you that maybe you would need the whole garage. <laughs> right. My wife would totally call me on that. <laughs> so, so then, uh, so we're, we're, sorry, we're in the middle of uh, doing the kitchen. And I've got to make inset doors and inset drawers for the cabinets. I've done, I've done the drawers are finished. I'm about halfway through the doors. And my wife this recently said, you know, look, uh, if you finish the kitchen and just get it done, including all the trim and everything, the next thing you do can be to insulate the garage and make it more of a shop. So now I've learned, what does this teach me? That if I procrastinate on the stuff I'm supposed to be doing in the house. <laughs> That's the wrong lesson. <laughs> nice. The lesson. I'll get what I want for nice. my shop. And you can pay. So, you know, obviously this is a lot easier to do in Texas or Florida or something like that. But up in New England or Wisconsin or wherever in the northern climes, you can pay your spouse back by you do the car clearing. You're the one who goes out there. You clear the car off before 15 minutes before they go to work and turn the car on and all that. That's yeah. what you, you owe them that. Oh, all right. Matt, get your I, butt out there. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, let's go into our first segment of the day. Actually, this will be our only segment since we had that lovely interview with Phil. Um, this is going to be pins versus tails, uh, where we all kind of agree to disagree on a particular <laughs> topic. So this segment comes as a result of a Shop Talk listener, Bill Rush, who asked, I have a question regarding the use of shop aprons. Just curious if people use them or something like them. If so, what style or brand do they recommend? Anything to look for in one, and what do people typically carry in them? Who shall we start with? I just want to say that I, I use something like a shop apron. It's actually a shop hammock. I, what? No. <laughs> it's a terrible joke. Are we going to yes, have to cut that out? <laughs> let's, I don't let's even understand that. You know a joke's bad when you don't even understand it. It's just like, what is Explain yourself. What is something like a shop apron? You know? What would that? Mm. I don't know. What, what would that be? I still don't get it. So maybe mm. we should just move yeah, on. I say we start with the negative Nelly here. Uh, oh, is that let's me? Let's start with you. You already yeah. know I don't wear a shop apron. Well, um, I I don't wear a shop apron because I'm not Geppetto. No, <laughs> uh, beca- no, it's because I think because I have a small shop, I don't need to wear one. I noticed that the guys I've seen wearing shop aprons a lot um, tend to have larger shops um, where. 
you can't be wandering all over the place. Like, where did I put my little square? And it's 200 feet away. Like you guys who work a lot here in the fine working shop. Mm -hmm. It's a big shop. In my shop, I keep everything out of cabinets and hung on the wall so it's within easy reach. And I don't like that strap on the back of my neck hanging there. And to fill my pockets with metal objects pulling the strap down harder onto like my neck. Like the anal retentive carpenter on yes. Saturday Night Live? And, Look that up, And people. jingle around yeah. the shop. I kind of, I'll have a pocket, you know, I have a shirt pocket, I'll keep a pencil in there or something, but everything's pretty much well within reach. Also, I go out to the shop for like 15, 20 minutes at a time sometimes, and, you know, I'm not constantly putting an apron on and off. The only exception is for glue-ups, I'll sometimes put on an apron and I've started to develop the crusty apron mode that some guys do, like Greg Paulini and Michael Fortune, where you use that to wipe off your fingers with glue. And it just becomes like armor-plated after a while. Modern art. <laughs> yes. <It> comes mo- <laughs> Exactly. But, yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of aprons. Yeah. How about I w- you guys? I wear one. I don't wear always wear it, but I do wear one. I have one uh, that my wife made me. Uh, with input from me about where the pocket should be and such. It's Matt just, spends hours going through his closet to, to choose which shop apron, apron he's going to wear during I have about a video workshop shoots. Shop aprons. What's weird is that it's leather and he doesn't wear anything else but a pair of boots. <laughs> right. Which is just, that's the part that I, you know, take it's issue with. It's actually apron slash what do you carry? What do you carry in your, in your pseudo apron, Matt? Uh, mostly it's just layout tools. I would never put anything really heavy in there because... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it just seems kind of foolish. But um, I carry, you know, my uh, squares, a couple of squares, maybe uh, a r- short rulers, uh, pencils, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because uh, even though I have a fairly small shop, it's, you know, basically a, t- a two-car garage, you know, if I'm at my planer and I want to know how thick something is as I'm planing it, you know, I don't want to have to walk back yeah. to my bench or to my tool cabinet and also, if I have my apron, then I'm not going to set it down at the planer and leave it there. Right. Uh, so um, that's why I wear an apron. I also wear an apron to um, – a lot of times when I'm working, like a lot of times I'll come home from work and before the kids are in bed, I might be down in the shop doing something. Mm-hmm. And if I'm wearing an apron, it keeps all the dust and stuff off me. So when I go up – uh, my kids, you know, they they want hugs or whatever. I can give them hugs and not have to worry about getting them dirty after their baths. Fair enough. Have you? I How wear, about you, Ed? I totally wear one because I you work do. at the shop here, right. which is big. Right. The weird thing is, is and, though, it's your mom's old baking apron. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very bizarre. Frilly. Yeah. Um, no, but I and I'm also a very I can be a very flighty person when I'm thinking about a lot of projects in my head. Really? And I leave things all over the place. That's surprising. And I cannot. I, it's like in this shop, forget it. Yeah, I, I know it's that. a big shop, and also it's not your own stuff in your own places, right. and you really got to be careful about what's yours and carrying your own stuff around. But people could um, weigh in on our. Uh, where would they put comments? Oh, for in, the, the, in the blog post for this episode. Which yeah, is what do you put in? Do you wear an apron, and what do you put in it? That'd be a good. I, um, let's give them Mike Pekovich's email, <laughs> personal <laughs> email. I um, I keep my four inch square, a couple pencils, my marking knife. Uh, sometimes countersink bits, uh, and a switchblade. <laughs> and I, I have, I use a cheapy deepy one. It's a bucket boss. It's like thirty bucks. Cheapy. That's those are nice. Um, bucket boss is works good. for me. Yeah. And um, but wait a minute, is it something? How do you? Is it an apron or is it one of those things you put inside a bucket? 
No, no, no. It's an apron. Weird if you wore the bucket thing around his Um, waist. Oh, here's the apron. Have you seen the apron variation? That's just the belt level. Yeah, I don't like ties around the back. That's pretty good. Oh yeah, yeah. That's Um, that's like a nail apron. I might go for that because uh, it doesn't hang on the back of my neck. Well, you just don't have the right. You haven't worn the right kind of apron yet. Mine doesn't hang on my. My neck at all. No, all right. So that's You've convinced me. I think Matt won that one. Well, that's what I use, and I know Kelly Dutton uses. He's a big fan of his Duluth yeah. shopping, which is very well made. I have one it's of those tough, here at you know. work. Yeah, uh, and I, only, I leave it here, and I wear that one because a lot of times when I'm at work, when what I'm normally doing is either gluing or finishing, and I don't want that stuff on my really nice work t-shirts. Sure. So um, you guys sound really anal retentive. So oh, do you man. wear an apron when you like? Um, mow the lawn or cook dinner <laughs> or stuff like that. What? I don't need to carry tools around who when I'm mowing the, the lawn. Who mows the lawn? That's true. Uh, all right. Moving on. Next question. Jonathan Shopinski, um, who uh, phonetically spelled his name out for us, thank you, because it was a little difficult to figure out. Uh, he wrote in to say, I was catching up on some of the podcasts I missed the other day. I listened to episode 12 with Nick Offerman, and he was saying that he lets his slabs dry after he rough cuts them. Do you know the process he uses to dry out the large slabs? To what moisture content and how long it takes? I'm especially interested in the extra thick slabs like in his side tables that he makes out of tree stumps, as seen in Fine Woodworking Issue 222. It seems like chunks of wood that thick would take years and years to dry out if they ever do. Thanks. If for those people yeah. who don't know, Nick is our is probably our main celebrity friend these days to the magazine. He plays Ron Swanson on the NBC comedy Parks and Rec. Um, Parks and Recreation, which I think has moved to 8.30 now on Thursday nights. Just throwing a shout-out to Nick. He's so generous with info, and sure enough, he answered. Yeah, he did. So we we forwarded the email to him, and he wrote back. I'll just read you the whole thing here. Um, I'm afraid I don't have anything particularly scientific to offer Jonathan P. Chopinski. We sticker our slabs like any honest pilgrim and use the one year of drying per inch of thickness rule of thumb after coating the end grain with old paint or wax. In Southern California, the arid climate hustles drying right along. Regarding the more solid stumps that become rectangular blocks, we use the same rule, so we just let them sit for 16 to 20 years depending on dimensions. (laughs) Psych! That would be stupid and untenable, or at least beyond my powers of patience. Um, All the more massive pieces I've shaped into occasional or side tables have come from scrap or burn piles that have already been drying for several years. I guess I wouldn't shoot for such solid finished pieces if I didn't receive the material already pretty well dry. If I had to deal with a green piece of that beefiness and breadth, I suppose I'd try drilling some vent holes in the underside or do some clever resawing and reassembly to remove the inner mass of wood. Really, any way you can get air and circulation to more of the wood fibers will speed things along. I've seen a lot of solid chunks in retail design stores, high-end ones, in L.A. and New York, which have been merely shaped green and placed for sale for the price of a nice one-way lathe or even a brand-new Northfield joiner, mind you, that have moved all over the place, splitting canyons into the end grain, complete with splinters and terrible jagged checks with razor-sharp edges. Hopefully, all of those unscrupulous fly-by-nighters are turning into your podcast, tuning into your podcast and will thereby feel properly admonished, so they'll stop choking the market with their unsightly garbage. A consummation devoutly to be wished. You can say I'm a dreamer, Ed Pernick, but I'll tell you something right to your e-face. I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us. And the world will properly dry their material before shaping it for sale. To coin a phrase, 
Oh man, See, man, that's that's, <laughs> that's what it's like to uh, to be a professional comedian yep. and not a jokester like us, <laughs> right? Um, but I will I will point out you yeah. should post that. There's so much good stuff there. You should post that on the <laughs> site on our page just so people can really read it over. Can we use it in the Q and A section of the magazine? Oh, that would be good. That would be hilarious. That would be good. <laughs> you think? Yeah, <laughs> I think that's great. You would let it pass? Of course. What do you mean I would let it pass? Well, <laughs> what am I, Gandalf? <laughs> None shall pass. Yes. Uh, all right. I would point out about uh, yeah. Nick is right that California is very arid and dry. I would, uh, in the east or in the south, the thicker your wood gets, the less accurate the one right. year per inch is. Uh, like a two, like eight quarter might take three years to dry. Instead in, of two. Yeah, instead of two. Yeah. yeah. So dry it as long as you can. Well, the thing 16 is... 16 to 20 years. G- and, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Get a moisture meter and uh, check it. Um, so we, before we move on, I think we should mention Nick has uh, his site for uh, his furniture and whatnot and his shop. Yeah, and he sells a lot of funny gear, and you can see what he's up to. He has a real working, uh, great working shop in L.A. He was a woodworker and uh, a... Um, carpenter before he really made it big as an actor and um uh, which he didn't really make it make it until sort of age 39 and he got this show but but even he's been a woodworker for a long time he's got a working shop in LA they get up to a lot of different fun there and he's got a website where you can buy some of his funny gear and see what he's up to called offermanwoodshop.com and a facebook page too so you can check that out as well yeah. all right moving on mike sorick wrote what is the rule of thumb on the length and thickness of a mortise and tenon? That should be about two fingers thick. We sent this question <laughs> to President Barack Obama, and President Obama wrote back to me. And <laughs> so what's the deal? Is there Thank a rule of thumb? Thank you for contacting the White House. <laughs> yes. Um, he just lost 75% of our audience, ah! probably. <laughs> While uh, the president cannot personally review each question, you can be sure that... No, right. Um, there is no rule of thumb in the sense of like, well, I guess there's a couple rules of thumb, but no, there's no real super specifics. Basically, there is it, a rule of index fingers. Right. There's the, the size of a mortise and tenon is a compromise between the mortise piece and the tenon piece. You're going for um, as big a tenon as you can get into the mortise piece without uh, compromising the mortise piece. So basically as much tenon as you can fit in there without weakening the mortise piece too much um right yeah generally speaking though what we what well if the i would say if the te- if the tenon piece and the mortise piece are the same thickness you'd want to go no more than half the the tenon would be no more than half the thickness of that of the mortise piece yeah yeah right probably right. a little bit less yeah um and uh usually the you were you were saying uh, earlier today and it's a good rule it's a decent rule of thumb and that is that the tenon is often one third to one half the the size of the piece that's being tenoned the right uh, of the ra- what the rail of the so rail or yeah. the apron. you, you want to maximize yeah. your glue surface on the tenon without um causing weakening the piece yeah. that has the mortise in it. i yeah, mean the, the short answer is big as possible yeah yes. you know basically without you want as much piece. you want as much glue surface on the cheeks of that tenon as you can get. Now, there are times, there's a couple little caveats. One is when the tenon um, 
when it's a short piece, so you can't really have a super tall tenon. You can double up tenons side by side. That's like a lot of times short rails, like the rail Two that goes underneath. Two tenons in the end the, of a board with a space between them. Yes, and that's yeah. often like the rail, the very thin rail that goes under a drawer on yes. a table. Another caveat is if you have a very tall piece, you you sometimes cannot tenon that entire one big single tenon. When you get beyond five inches or so, it's there's so much wood movement that you can't have one big giant full tenon. Sometimes there you'll have two tenons with like a little stub between them. Um, there's you, you you kind of need to go to a double tenon vertically at that point. Right. And another good thing to keep in mind when you're making tenons is you should never have the tenon go 90 degrees to the grain of the mortise piece because then your mortise is cutting across the grain as opposed to going with the grain. Huh. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, a good example would be like on um, Tim Rousseau's uh, Asian table with the raised thing. Uh, the it was raised a video workshop top. we did. And yeah. it was also an article. <clears throat> yep. And he had those stretchers in between the short stretchers from front to back in between the, between long, the long aprons. aprons. Yeah, and those were mortised. There, I think. They, I think he used slip tenons, and they're so uh, you have through this, tenons. They're through tenons. They were through tenons. So you have the apron, and it runs long, right? Long, right. and you've got a short stretcher coming into it at ninety degrees. Well, normally you would have your uh, your tenon oh, standing see. tall. So you have two pieces that are vertical, um, going straight into each other. Uh, that's kind of what you're talking about. And you could have a tenon that goes completely across grain. It's end grain that you're actually trying to glue to. That, Ye- that is the bad thing. Yes. And what – well, what's bad is that if, if you make that uh, – it's you know, like when you put a mortise in a leg, the length of the mortise is always uh, along the grain. Yes. If you do it, say, into like an apron like I'm talking about, and if you make that – a vertical uh, tenon. A vertical tenon. You're cutting across the yeah, grain you're, you're, and you're, weakening. The, the mortise walls are end grain then. Yes. So what you're saying is make those tenons, if you're going to double them up, make them horizontal. Yes. So they both go across long grain instead of end yes, grain. Yes, and use that, two there. That is going to be hard for everyone to picture out there. But. Yeah, have fun with that, <laughs> folks. Um. <laughs> I know it's. I didn't do a good job explaining it, but that's a really important thing. Uh I've been I've 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 made a couple of things recently where that's been an issue. I think we just hit the limit of what can be accomplished <laughs> in a podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, but as... it's a really good point. It's just like this is we need back to go to back to that video podcast we no, used we to don't. do. No, we don't. But <laughs> but we would have a whiteboard and one of I us would, would get up and draw. It, yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Well, everybody knows we get uh, lots of comments on our iTunes um, page every week, and uh, I like to read a few at the end of every podcast. So here we go. One Wheel wrote in to say, As a fine woodworking digital subscriber, I'm constantly coming across new content, stuff I didn't know was out there. Case in point, Shop Talk Live. I've listened to and enjoyed the previous episodes. The editors are awesome. Mike is my hero. Ed, listen, gentlemen, go ahead and throw in a few sound effects. Did you hear that? Asa, it took a while for me to get your sense of humor, but I like it. Just stop overusing the term precious. Keep it coming. Always more to learn. Um... From Math, the woodworker. Thanks for all the work all you guys do for all of us woodworkers. I love all the humor and sound effects. Oh, my God. 
Look at this. You know, who picks out these comments Please. to read on the air? Uh, the uh, guy who wants to put the, bring the sound effects <laughs> right. back. Betsy does. No, not me. Our yeah, admin, right. Betsy. Please bring back the sound effects. Your podcast is one of my favorites. And finally, from Wanderoo, great podcast to listen to while doing repetitive work like lapping a plain soul. I don't know if that is a compliment or a disparity. It is. That, actually, that's <laughs> when I listen to stuff that takes a little bit of attention is – if um if I just have to put a ton of wood through the planer or something like that, it's nice to have something going in the background. There's parts of woodworking that's tedious, but it's like I pull out the earbuds when I really have to measure and start paying attention and stuff. Then you put on the classical music. Two things about that last comment. Sure. One, Wanderoo, I think probably Australian. Because that yeah, sounds definitely. like something. I love that Absolutely. name. That's cool. It's like, I am go out on a no, it's not I'm like, going out on a wanderoo. Oh, yes, on no. a wanderoo. You can all make fun of me for Two, stop lapping plain souls. <laughs> stop. You can lap your plain soul if it needs it, but we got into a little bit of trouble uh, with some people who read a recent article. Uh, oh, I wasn't talking about that. I oh, was no. Just, I was just saying. Stop buying planes that neither souls lap. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> just yeah, that that <laughs> was right. the point of the letters to the editor <laughs> right. was don't buy a Veritas or Lee Nielsen plane and, and then lap it. Right, you're you're only going to make it worse. All right, well that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on March 22nd for our next episode. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes and by all means click that five star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at tauntin.com, T-A-U-N-T-O-N, as in Nancy. You can catch the podcast via iTunes or stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com. Cheers, everybody. 